Today, we're pulling some hormones out of the shadows that don't get talked about enough. Welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 337. Uh, and I have a massive smile on my face. I usually do, uh, but I have an extra big smile on my face because uh, my dear friend, Dr. Carrie Jones, is back on the show. And boy, did we have fun recording this. Uh, I was really kind of looking at some of the hormones that don't get talked about a lot. Estrogen, progesterone, they get a ton of press and rightly so when it comes to women's health. But what about prolactin? Not just about breastfeeding, uh, you will discover. What about DHEA? What about melatonin and a whole bunch of other hormones that cross over into the neurotransmitter territory? So I wanted to bring those as we laughed about uh, my code name for the show, Out of the Shadows, and now we have to say hormones out of the shadows because that's just kind of how it sounds and it sounds like we're writing a movie. Uh, but Dr. Carrie Jones is the woman to distill very complex uh, biochemistry and hormone information into tools that we can use to discuss with our practitioners, to investigate for ourselves and to move forward uh, when things aren't quite right and we've ticked the estrogen progesterone box maybe and it's not quite there or we're not getting any results from what we're doing to then start having a look at a few of these other hormones. So uh, for those of you who don't know Carrie, I've had her on the show a couple of times. We've done a perimenopause show before and we've done a general women's health and hormones uh, show as well. So you can definitely check those out wherever you listen to uh, our podcast. Uh, But If you're brand new and you haven't heard of Carrie, please do go check her out on socials. She's so generous with what she shares. She is a very recognized speaker, consultant and educator on the topic of women's health and hormones. She has over 20 years in the industry, dubbed the queen of hormones, as I said before. She's a naturopathic physician who did her two-year residency focused in women's health and endocrinology. She went on to get a Master of Public Health and was one of the first to become board certified through the American Board of Naturopathic Endocrinology, for which she served on the board for several years. Uh, She is uh, the host of uh, the Root Cause Medicine podcast uh, that has over 3 million downloads. She's the clinical expert for the Lifestyle Matrix Resource Centre and is on the Under Armour Human Performance Council. She's currently the Chief Medical Officer at New Ethics Formulation and Head of Medical Education at Metabolic Mentor University. A busy woman. So that is who we're talking to on today's show. I want to remind you of our awesome sponsors. We have, of course, our major sponsor for the whole of 2023. You get Oz Climate, amazing Winix air purifiers and dehumidifiers. Sorry, Americans and everybody else in the world. This is just for the Aussies. Uh, But you're very lucky, Aussies, because these really are fantastic units. 
I could read for pages and pages and pages the amount of testimonials we have received from listeners who find these to be game-changing, especially people who've struggled with that damp room in the shady part of their house or, um, you know, drying things out in the bathroom so that you're not always trying to figure out how to clean mould out of grout uh, or keeping your laundry area nice and low humidity if you have to use the dryer or maybe getting through a wet season without all of your shoes and leather goods going mouldy. I could go on and on. So you have 10% off. Lotox Life is your code and you can head to ozclimate.com.au or give them a buzz on the phone and talk through your options and situation to get the right unit for you. We also have the wonderful Earth Tank ceramic handmade water filters. Uh, So you might not have heard of this beautiful new brand. It's an Australian brand, uh, a wonderful couple who's on a mission to ensure people have stunning uh, aesthetic uh, water filter options, but that also are super high performance. So while it looks very pretty, it also purifies and removes virtually all the impurities found in everyday water supplies. It has no plumbing, no plumbing, no electricity, just a beautifully designed handmade uh, hand. Gosh, not talking very well today. Handmade ceramic urn, carbon ceramic filter candle, and a stainless steel brushed gold or rose gold tap. It's family owned and operated Aussie business. Uh, Brandon and Ellie are such lovely people who are really, really passionate about clean water. And you don't have to worry about remineralizing because the minerals aren't removed in the filtration process. Uh, I would urge you to check out earthtank uh, underscore au on Instagram and follow their work. And also, of course, check out the beautiful options that they have. We have the stunning black one. I can't tell you how much we are loving having a big 12-litre water filter after years of just using tiny jugs uh, in our tiny apartment. This is kind of nice straight up and down and fit really nice and snugly on our um, kitchen counter just above our water tap actually uh, where we have a little ledge and the water tastes delicious. The filter actually filters quite quickly um, considering how much it removes because you're removing heavy metal such as lead. You're removing almost 100% fluoride, very, very close. Obviously, pesticide and herbicide residue, uh, harmful bacteria, chlorine, none of it makes it into your water glass. So you have 5% off their beautiful uh, black or cream water filters and your code is LOWTOXLIFE. So I would definitely head to earthtank.com.au to have a squiz. Uh, yes, it's just an Aussie offer, but I guarantee Aussies it's worth having a look. It's such a stunning uh, product and all handmade and lead-free. I checked. I've seen the certificate. So those are our sponsor offers. Let's get talking hormones. Dr. Carrie Jones, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm wonderful. I'm so excited to be back on. I know. I can't believe it has been so long. Since we did a podcast and the last one we did, I want to send everyone back to it who is in this phase of life was on perimenopause. I still remember uh, that that chat so vividly when you talked about how it was this cruel form of reverse puberty for so many of us. Having to re-get to know our bodies again, uh, it feels like women spend their entire lives doing this. And 
when I was thinking about what we could talk about today, and of course, I read all your wonderful stuff online. Um, you're so generous at educating and sharing your peeps on Instagram. And I wanted to do a bit of a hormones from the shadows, the ones that we don't talk about often, their impact, significance, and and I, then it got me thinking about all these hormones in our bodies. And then I literally woke up in the middle of the night. I'm going to tell everybody what I just told you off record and had a Goldilocks metaphor when it came to hormones, because it seems to me like our hormones are wandering around our bodies, looking for things that fit just right to make us feel good. Uh, But then they sit in the small chair and it breaks and then they sleep in the small bed and that breaks. And the ramification of our bodies when our hormones aren't on point, I mean, can cause just so much wacky stuff and it can feel not good at all, right? And, And so I also am conscious that in this day and age of uh, how much information we can consume on the internet, sometimes we can shoot ourselves in the foot trying to know too much about the not-so-practical stuff that the average Joe just really doesn't need to know. So I, I'm excited about this show because what you're going to share about some of the hormones we don't talk about a lot can actually end up piecing together some really complicated puzzles that people have tr- been trying to get answers for for years banging on the progesterone train or the estrogen train as like the two main stars of the show when it comes to women's health. But there are other players at the poker table and uh, sometimes they don't play nice. So where do you want to start as we pull (laughs) a few hormones out of the shadows? Out of the shadows. I love that so much. I'll be honest. One of the ones that I think is more common Mm -hmm. than practitioners realize is a dysfunction with the hormone prolactin. Okay. Now you and I had mentioned some of the, but off off record, we talked a little bit about um, those hormones that cross over into the neurosteroid, the neurotransmitter, and uh, while well, dopamine is associated with prolactin, I think we should start with prolactin because a lot of times I have had people in my comments and my DMs or patients would say to me, uh, "I've asked my doctor about prolactin. They said, well, that's not an issue unless you're breastfeeding." And I find that really interesting while it's true. So prolactin is our prolactation hormone and it does increase greatly. If you have chosen to, or are, you know, breastfeeding, that's what its job is to do. However, it is kept when you're, let's assume you are not breastfeeding at all. Mm-hmm. Haven't in Definitely decades, maybe you've never. <laughs> not breastfeeding right now. No. Me neither. Mm-hmm. But what can happen is uh, prolactin is under the control, under the suppressive control of dopamine. And if your prolactin gets a little high, a little over the range, then your body says, what's going on? Are you breastfeeding? Are you not breastfeeding? What are you doing? Why is prolactin making like coming out of the house today? Go back in the house. And so what it can do for women is it can make their cycles irregular. It can make them kind of weird. It can make them show up early, show up late. Now, classically, women may also get um, discharge, breast discharge. They may find if they had breastfed a decade or so ago, they're like, what the heck? I'm starting to make milk again. I don't understand, but you don't have to have that. And I have found or heard multiple times women say, I have really irregular cycles. 
And there, my doctor said, well, it can't be prolactin because you're not having any nipple discharge. You're not having any, any expression. I'm like, well, that can happen. It may not happen. And therefore we have to check prolactin because if it is a little high, then it can definitely screw with your cycle. Now, other things affect prolactin. Now, the worst case, worst, worst, worst case scenario, of course, is what's called a prolactinoma. It's a tumor in our brain that is not cancerous but it is on the pituitary and it causes us to make a lot of prolactin that we don't want made. Worst case scenario. However, as I said, low dopamine can also cause your prolactin to go up. Dopamine is like a, like a thumb. It's like keeping pressure on, on prolactin to keep it down. But if you don't have dopamine, you make more prolactin. If you don't have enough vitamin B6, you will make more prolactin. Vitamin B6 plays a role in dopamine. You get higher prolactin. If you are hypothyroid and it's not well controlled, so the top, top, top hormone for thyroid is TRH. We all talk about TSH, thyroid stimulating. TRH comes higher from uh, the next level up and TRH also stimulates prolactin. So while it stimulates TSH, it also stimulates prolactin. So if you are, if your body is trying to get your thyroid gland to make TSH, then you, it's possible it's also going to inadvertently stimulate prolactin. So I want women listening to be like, gosh, that's me. I have irregular cycles or I had regular and now they're irregular and no one, I'm just getting off of the birth control pill, right? Or I'm just getting told um, it's due to stress and, or you have two kids under the age of five that's expected or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. While it might be, if you have been going down these rabbit holes and don't have any answers, or it's been, you know, your doctor might say, well, give it three or four months. Let's get through the stress and see if it regulates itself. Ask to have prolactin added on because they're probably going to check your thyroid, cross your fingers. Hey, like, hey, can you add a prolactin and let's just see if maybe prolactin is the issue? Because how great to find out it's prolactin and maybe it's due to a thyroid problem. Maybe it's due to a lack of B6. God forbid it's due to that prolactinoma tumor. But prolactin is a big one that, um, unfortunately, I think gets blown off. Um, and and here's the even bigger kicker. Men can have elevated prolactin as well. So, and it, it's often, same reasons, tumor, thyroid, B6, low dopamine. Um, but it manifests obviously different. They feel low testosterone. So they'll have erectile issues, low libido. They'll feel emotional uh, more like the sort of the crying, weeping um, type of side, low energy. They And if it's a prolactinoma, maybe headaches. But I have talked to men who have had elevated, they all the symptoms of low testosterone and it was prolactin. But it's that not the that. Issue. Right. Prolactin can be suppressive to testosterone. Mm-hmm. So instead of just jumping into, oh, your testosterone's low, let's give you testosterone. Just back up and make sure, is it a thyroid problem? Is it a prolactin problem? especially in those younger men. Um, Mm. I think it's really important. So I have questions. Please. First question, T-R-H, what does the R Mm -hmm. stand for? Releasing. Mm -hmm. And I I have never, not even in functional, integrative, naturopath, noticed has ever requested T-R-H. Yeah, nobody does. Is this something it's, we have access to is it mm-hmm. like oh yeah it's just uh-huh. yeah it's just a blood test it's the Ooh. hypothalamus um uh down to the pituitary so then the pituitary releases tsh and tsh goes down to the gland the thyroid mm. gland and tells you to release t4 and t3 so um but it's just the next level up so hypothalamus to pituitary pituitary to 
the thyroid. So TRH. So if you, and it used to, they used to call that like, they used to differentiate thyroid from like primary uh, and secondary, depending on which level of the brain they felt was effective. Um, And I believe I read last year or two years ago, they changed those guidelines and now they've kind of just lumped it under, you know, you know, one thing when when you've got a thyroid problem, but um, endocrinologists will sometimes run a TRH. That's where I'll see it. Or if I'm suspicious of something brain history of traumatic brain injury, um, yeah, I was going to say, rate, right? like mm-hmm. even coming into ADHD symptoms, mm-hmm. uh, that could be a very interesting thing to know. It might be, the, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. definitely. I mean, in cortisol, we will check. You know, they'll look at they'll look at cortisol, but if they suspect something brain, they'll look at ACTH, and in some cases, they'll look at CRH which is again, that top tier level. And they're just trying to differentiate at what level is your cortisol being screwed up at? And we can do the same thing with the thyroid. TRH is that top level hypothalamus. And then we can do pituitary TSH and then the Hmm. gland. And so, um, yeah, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. It's a shadow hormone. It is. It, it's a C. It, fits, it fits perfectly with the conversation. I it know. It does. And, mm-hmm. and to me, like the people who have the chronic puzzles, I call them chronic puzzles because chronic illness is just like then you become this personality of the ill person. And I'm, I'm, I worry psychologically about owning that, like saying I am ADHD or I am a moldy. Like I remember saying that about myself once when I was really in the thick of it. And I'm like, oh my God, like that, the visual <laughs> on that alone no, I'm not. is so psychologically damaging if you start to inherit it as a persona. Mm-hmm. So the chronic puzzle, uh, and we often look downstream. And is that because downstream is where the pharmaceuticals correct symptoms is that why we ended up gravitating so far down the chain especially because in in a lot of arguments back which i understand in conventional world is well if it's if the downstream hormones are low your thyroid hormone tr t4 and t3 are low what do i care at what level of the brain is that i'm just going to give you replacement I don't care if it's your hypothalamus. I don't care if it's your pituitary. I'm just going to give you replacement. And so I understand why they might say that. However, let's say you're working with somebody with traumatic brain injury, or you're doing a lot of brain rehab. You're a TBI doctor. You've got them in hyperbaric oxygen therapy. You're doing all sorts of head and neck work, blood flow stuff. You're going to use that marker to see if it's working. I want to know if that TRH marker not just the downstream, I want the entire cascade working again. And so you will potentially check those top markers to see where you're at. So from a more maybe functional point of view, we like it because I'm like, well, how much work do I have to put towards the brain as opposed to the gland, as opposed to the periphery? However, it's not always in the, you know, the US, which is a very different insurance base. Um, it's not covered unless maybe an endocrinologist runs it. And so if you are, of course, bound by budget and we have to make choices, TRH is probably not, or CRH for cortisol, probably not where I'm going to start. I am going to start at wh- like what, where are you low and then work backwards from there. So I understand where they're coming from, but if somebody's listening and they're like, no, no, it, brain, um, I would love to know. I want to know what level it, it is an option to ask. It's just a blood draw. Yeah. 
Oh, that is um, that is enlightening, Carrie. And we've only just gotten started. <laughs> I love it. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, my second question uh, about all the good things you've just shared is best way to test for the prolactin, best time of cycle if you were doing blood and you didn't, say, have option to do a Dutch test or something more detailed, um, so can you just break down um, on the testing front and timing front as well? What's best? So ideally, yeah, it's a blood test is better done in the morning. Um, my sort of view, and as I'm reading more of the literature that's coming out, you know, women tend to follow a rhythm, um, but we all follow the circadian rhythm. So up in the morning, down at night. And I'm seeing more and more like things like TSH, again, thyroid stimulating hormone. I'm seeing our female hormones, estradiol, progesterone when it's made, testosterone, cortisol, of course, like they tend to, they're more active in their earlier day. And then that those pulses drop down um, for a lot of us as you get later in the day. So if I'm looking at a prolactin, I want to look in that morning blood draw. Now, regards to where you are in your cycle, the other thing I am noticing more and more is that if you are a cycling woman and you know you ovulate, so when you ovulate, if you've ever been to Las Vegas and you've seen the Bellagio fountains shoot off, it's a sight to see. I mean, they just go up so, 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 so high at the peak of their show. And that's how I envision ovulation. It's this entire waterworks show, you get the final surge of the, you know, that the highest, highest, highest surge of water. And that's when you release the egg. Well, because everything is surging, a lot of the female body gets caught up in that. Your TSH can go up. Your cortisol awakening response can go up. Like all of this stuff, your glucose insulin can change a little, like everybody, testosterone is gone up. Like everybody gets in the mix. So why wouldn't prolactin maybe go up a little bit? I don't know for sure, but I just want to let women know, hey, when you're checking these markers, ideally go for the morning yeah, and ideally probably not near ovulation. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. not. Because in that like two days before, two days after, you're probably going to be a little higher than you would have expected. I don't have total proof on that for prolactin. I, I, I am seeing more about thyroid in the literature and of course, cortisol in the literature, but um, sadly there's not a lot of money in researching that there's no drug that's going to come out of knowing do women, you know, get a surge of every hormone around ovulation, but from just observation and the little research we have, I'm like, good to know, mm. just maybe avoid ovulation. If you know, when you ovulate, whereas a menopausal woman just tests anytime, but a menopausal woman, um, she's not going to be having the cycle irregularity, right. But yeah. she may also, she may be experiencing nipple discharge, so one of the screening they may do is a prolactin while they're also sending her for imaging. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of uh, treatment options to bring mm-hmm. prolactin back into balance, once you've identified why it might be out, mm-hmm. would that then come back to what you talked about at the start where we look at the nutraceuticals and yeah. Yeah. So assuming it's not a tumor, um, the tumor is either removed surgically Mm -hmm. or it's suppressed with medication. None of the nutraceuticals, vitamins, to my knowledge, are capable of suppressing the tumor that you have to go on one of the two medications or have it surgically removed if that's an option. But if it's not, let's say you've had a brain MRI, they said, nope, it's not that. It must be thyroid. It must be B6. It must be then test, right? Or just take, we can take, you can take 
vitamin B6, you know, it's, it's a, it's a B vitamin. If your thyroid is off, let's address your thyroid. B6 helps your dopamine. Um, stress is another one. Um, short-term acute stress can cause prolactin to raise just a little bit. So let's address your stress, you know, like what's going on. Um, now stress itself can throw your cycle off, but if you happen to have gotten testing, you have your cortisol and your practitioner added a prolactin and saw that everything was elevated then let's address everything. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. I, I feel like we've milked that <laughs> yeah. one for everything we <laughs> had. I Look at you. Couldn't resist. Your own um, comedian. Yes. <laughs> um, what else are we pulling out of the shadows? Can we talk DHEA? We can. That's my, actually my favorite hormone. Mm-hmm. Like if Why? I had to pick if I had to pick a favorite hormone, then DHEA is definitely it. It is um, also a neuro neurosteroid, so it's good for the brain. And it is protective in the brain against the damaging effects of cortisol. And DHEA gets a terrible name, a rap, right? Like a terrible name, triple rap, because of everyone with PCOS who has elevated levels of DHEA, they're like, I hate DHEA. It gives me acne. It gives me hair growth in places I don't want. It gives me hair loss on my head. And I fully understand that and agree with you. However, if we can get it into the perfect Goldilocks chair, then it is actually really quite protective in the brain against cortisol. And it can melt, make uh, other your other hormones like, like estrogen if you need it. And so um, it's a good stress responder hormone for people that we forget about. We always go to the worst case scenario. DHEA mm-hmm. caused my hair loss. I'm like, well... But it also might be elevated because you're super stressed out and it's protecting your brain. So hair loss is a bystander product. Sorry. Let's work on that. And I remember years ago, um, my DHEA was low and my naturopath actually put me on a DHEA supplement, but she was monitoring it really closely because she said, once you put this hormone in, you don't know what it's going to help you produce more of necessarily when you take it orally. Um, and so you just have to watch for symptoms to make sure it doesn't push something up that you don't want pushed up. Can you explain how on earth that happens? Like, yeah, what, what's going so on there? In our tissues and out in the peripheries, what we call the rest of our body, when you have DHEA floating around, it can aromatize into estrogen. So you can make some estrogens out of DHEA. You can also move downstream and it can become another androgen called androstenedione, which can then go on to make testosterone, or it can continue downstream and make what we call the, like the offspring or the metabolites of DHEA. So when you look at a steroid chart of where in the world can DHEA go, there's a few arrows pointing off of it. And it always will. Now, the other thing is that DHEA can become uh, the storage form of DHEA called DHAS. So you may not make estrogen and you may not make testosterone. Your body may push it into the S form to be used later where you pull the S off and now you have active DHEA to float around and do the thing. So it is important to monitor and it's important on dose as well. Women don't make as much DHEA as men do. I believe we make on average like eight to 16 milligrams a day. So, and that's produced naturally in the body. Now in our, in our supplements, we, we generally um, 
start out lower. We generally start out at the one to two milligram, go up to five to 10 milligrams. There are 20 milligram um, here in the States. You can get it over the counter is at all sorts of doses. Um, but as a, if you already have low DHEA jumping full head in into 20 milligrams, oftentimes you get negative side effects. So we tend to we tend to ease into that one. Whereas men make a whole lot more than that. They generally start at 25 milligrams and go up maybe 50, maybe 75. So the dose you're on too also makes a difference in maybe what side effects you'll have or maybe where it will go. Yeah. And if we're going to take something like DHEA, a hormone, uh, what are the ramifications in terms of the body making its own? Like, you know, you see a lot of things bandied about and I would love for you to clear up a statement like, oh, it makes your own hormone production lazy. It doesn't. No, false. Um, There is no feedback loop as far Mm -hmm. as we know for DHEA. So if you don't make it very well, so we, we women make DHEAS, the sulfated form, which is the storage form in our adrenal glands. That's where we make it. And now you pop the S off, no, no, no S. So which is plain old DHEA. We make that in our ovaries. We make that also in our adrenal glands and we can make it what we say, like out in the periphery, out in the rest of our body. So you can make it a couple of places. Now, if you take DHEA, you will not shut down any of those or make worse any of those other locations because there's no feedback loop. There are feedback loops for other hormone, um, like cortisol is a feedback loop progesterone as a feedback loop, but DHEA does not. So if you give DHEA or take DHEA or get prescribed DHEA, you still have to figure out or address like, why is your DHEA low in the first place? Is it adrenal? Is it ovarian? Is it age? You know, are you on a medication that suppresses it? Those kind of things. And then work from there. Yeah. Cool. And you mentioned adrenal. So uh, a case scenario where someone's had chronic illness they went into their high cortisol phase and then they went into their crash cortisol phase and they're in rebuild mode. Would that be a situation where a little DHEA goes a long way? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Help give them a little oomph. And, you know, I'll see arguments out there on social media where somebody says, if you give DHEA, it's just a Band-Aid and you're not addressing the cause. And I'm like, I know that's my point. Like, I know what I'm doing when I give or prescribe DHEA. I'm literally using it to give you oomph. Like to use it as a band-aid, like, hey, look, you're in rebuild phase. Let's give you the energy to rebuild while we're doing all the supportive measures on the back end. It doesn't mean you're on DHEA forever, or I'm going to use it as a crutch for the rest of your life, but it does mean right now it could be really helpful because we've all either had those clients or we know those people or we are those people where we wake up in the morning and think to ourselves, if I just had a little bit of energy, if I just had a little bit of like liquid gold to help me do the things I need to do, to be motivated to make the change I want to change or to, you know, take my, remind myself to take my supplements or go for that walk or whatever it is, just the baby step stuff. That's where DHEA can be helpful. Like, let's just help those people with a little bit of support so they can make these changes as opposed to praying for willpower or praying Mm -hmm. for discipline, you know? Yeah. So it's like a nutraceutical SOS while we work on the long game situation. Yes. And it makes me think of sometimes like would DHEA perhaps be more suitable in the kind of case where uh, adaptogens are sometimes just too much to push 
you know, I'm thinking of those chronic puzzle peeps. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes adaptogens like almost jack you up in a way, like if you're in low cortisol phase and you're trying to rebuild, yeah. it yeah. feels like DHEA might be like building blocks versus the the Coca-Cola for the quick hit that actually backfires <laughs> sometimes. I'm not poo-pooing yeah. herbs. I'm really yeah. not. I love them. Yeah. Um, but like different cases for different people and really tuning into what kind of support you need right now. Um, and yeah. working with a practitioner who can actually identify those nuances and go, mm, this is not a case for pumping you up full of ginseng. This is actually a time for some building blocks that that help your whole system um, function a bit better first. And I'm actually glad you said that with the ginseng example. What I see with adaptogens, as much as I love adaptogens. Oh, me too. There's a, there's yeah. a lot of generalization of mm-hmm. they all do the same thing mm-hmm. and they're only cortisol related. Therefore, I'm going to take this adaptogen that I found at the, st- at the store that this my social media influencer told me to take but I took it and didn't feel well. I'm like, well, first of all, we call it an adaptogen because it is literally there's to be considered an adaptogen is to follow all these rules, but it's systemic and how it works. Like we get the most press to cortisol and stress, but it absolutely works on all your systems, your immune system, your neurologic system, your cardiovascular system, et cetera, et cetera. You also have different properties to these adaptogens. So just because you've read or heard that rhodiola or Korean ginseng or Asian ginseng is an adaptogen doesn't mean it doesn't come with a whole like how-to book. Rhodiola is the second most stimulatory adaptogen out there, assuming you have real adaptogen or real rhodiola. There's obviously some crap out there. And so if you are if you don't need to be stimulated as in like, might give me more anxiety, might make me feel worse, might make me feel tired, but wired, um, rhodiola and, and the, the, the Asian or Korean ginseng, red ginseng is not for you. The red ginseng is the most stimulatory by far. But when people take it and they're like, oh, I just felt so much worse. These, these herbs don't work. I'm like, well, that one didn't, that's not what you needed. Rhodiola is also very drying. So if you're already a dry person, dry eyes, dry mouth, dry vagina, and then you take rhodiola and you're like, well, now my eyes are dry. (laughs) I feel worse. I feel older and I'm anxious, you know, and I'm like this revved up weirdness. It's not that you like adaptogens as a family is wrong for you. It's the wrong adaptogen was given to you. Whereas like ashwagandha, ashwagandha is really good for that airy, heady person that needs to come down, the, the the balloon that needs to, a rock to ground it. If you're already underwater, if you're already low energy, depressed down, and then you take ashwagandha, it can make you worse. One of the side effects of ashwagandha is anhedonia, which is that like nothing in life gives me joy or pleasure. Like it just really knocks you down. So if you, you again, right, but ashwagandha is in everybody, everything, and it's touted as the safest and it's touted as this, that, and the other. And it is a great herb. But if you don't know these details around it, then you're going to go, oh, that natural crap doesn't work. I took this blend and I, my depression got worse, or I took this blend and my anxiety got worse. It's, It's junk. Like just like a medication, they come with a handbook. You have to know it. Yeah. 
I, I could not agree more. I'm so glad adaptogens came up because that is just such a great, <laughs> well, it's such a great yeah. example of not generalizing A mm-hmm. and B, remembering that the people that dispense adaptogens have studied to be an Ayurvedic doctor or they've studied to be a naturopathic doctor or naturopath or nutritionist and done their herbal med um, electives. Like they've literally had to sit exams to figure out which one is right for which situation. And um, there's nothing wrong with a little curious testing and just following what's on the back for a lower like sub therapeutic dose to just see, but to then like decide uh, without any um, uh, practitioner support, you could actually be missing the whole point of why you yeah. would look at that category of herbs in the first yep. place. Yep. Yeah, a hundred percent. And yeah. so DHEA to finish up, can I ask you then about testing for it? Mm. Is it again, mm-hmm. the same situation where we do kind of somewhere in the end of the first week of the cycle before um, before the lights come on for ovulation. <laughs> that's, that's my understanding. That's what I'm like encouraging people to do now. What mm. now a lot of people, when they do, uh, DHEA or cortisol testing, usually for practical purposes, budget purse purposes, they're doing all their blood work or their hormone testing at once. And they're generally doing it if they're cycling in the second half of their cycle. So, so, um, not often do I have somebody who only tests DHEA. Usually it's in a combination of progesterone and estradiol and cortisol. And so I'm like, look, because of that progesterone factor, I want it after ovulation in the second half of your cycle. Let's just get all your testing done at once. So that's when you're going to do it. So that's usually when I tell people. Now you you can do DHEA uh, or DHEAS in blood. You can do it in saliva. You can do it in urine. There are a lot of options, but please do know which one you're testing. DHEA and DHEAS are not the same thing. And your body prefers, it's a significant percentage. It's like 60 plus percent is converted into DHEAS in your day. And a much, 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 much smaller percent, like under 15% is allowed as DHEA no S. And so I have absolutely had people get them confused and use them apples to apples. So they'll get a blood draw of DHEA and then they'll get a saliva test of DHAS and they're like, it doesn't match. I'm like, yeah, they're not, they look like the same, but one is an S Mm. and that S is a big deal. (laughs) Why? Okay. Talk us through the big deal of the S. Yes. So the S is the sulfate form. So the body, believe it or not, when you sulfate something, that's part of your phase two detoxification. And so in your body, you can sulfate things, estrone, estradiol S, estrone S, DHEA S. And so the the body's like, I'm going to put an S on it and let it float around. And then when I need it, I can take the S off and then DHEA can bind to the receptor and do the thing, or it can magically turn into other hormones that it needs to turn into. So you have a lot more DHEA S because the body can use it as a, as a, holding pattern, I guess, like as a storage form. Yeah. So I'm picturing like airplanes in the sky kind of yeah, waiting and then kinda, it's like, Hey, yeah. we're ready to land. Let's ditch yeah. the S and let's get down there. Yeah. So when you get blood work or when you do saliva or urine, um, it's good to know which one you're getting urine and saliva are generally DHEA S with the S on because the majority of your DHEA is pushed that direction. So it's a nice stable, solid result of like, what do you do? 
where serum can go either way. So when you get your blood drawn, and especially if you're seeing a practitioner who doesn't maybe love hormones or do hormones or understand hormones, and you're like, hey, can you can you test this for me? their default will be DHEA. So just don't apples to apples. Cause if you're like, well, I have this urine test and it was high last year and it's low this year in my blood, just make sure it's, you know, are they both S's is the S you know, not on one. Um, Cause I did see that happen a lot where people would get really frustrated across results, but I, but it was different things they were looking at. And you can do both. I have people who are like, well, I want to know my DHEA. And my DHAS. I'm like, totally fine. Blood work. Yeah. Go get your blood drawn. Let's see it. Yeah. Let's see what you're doing. Yeah. Okay. And then for the Goldilocks experience of DHEA, <laughs> uh, too high, too low. How do we get it just right? Like what are some of the, obviously the SOS can be supplementation for a period of mm-hmm. time, but mm-hmm. what are the key factors that help it fi- help it be balanced in the body? Well, remember I said that the big one is the adrenal gland. So adrenal health. Um, now it is signaled from the brain. So brain health is very important. And then down into the adrenals, down into the mitochondria, one of the layers of your adrenal glands makes your DHEA S all, um, and then some of your DHEA no S. And then some your ovaries put out about 20% of your DHEA no S as well. So what does your ovarian health look like? Um, where are you in your cycle? Where are you with your age? Those are the kind of thing, medications. Those are the things we're looking at with DHEA. Because even um, those synthetic corticosteroids, so prednisone, uh, steroid inhalers, steroid creams, steroid nasal sprays, we talk a lot about the suppression. Those can suppress cortisol, your own cortisol production. It can also suppress DHEA out of the adrenal glands. And so if somebody's a heavy inhaler user, um, they may find their DHEA is low. If somebody's prednisone because of some autoimmune they have, they might find that their DHEA is low. Um, I tend to, I don't always see, but sometimes we will see DHEA low with the birth control pill. We tend to see testosterone low. Uh, with the birth control pill, because one of its mechanisms of action lowers testosterone. Um, But sometimes we'll see DHEA low as well. So medications can be one for DHEA. Uh, And then that elevated high levels, so the opposite, that Goldilocks is too big, too much. Um, We commonly see this with PCOS, right? Polycystic ovary syndrome. Insulin, elevated insulin, hyperinsulinemia could be a big trigger for uh, DHEA uh, as well. And, And in that classical PCOS look where insulin is elevated, um, getting insulin under control can be really quite helpful. Yeah. And so DHEA for me looks like, uh, you, yes, you can see it high or low, but you also need to zoom out and see Mm -hmm. what else is going on rather than just focusing on it and just supplementing it to correct without looking at something bigger. And everybody, I don't blame them. Everybody Mm. wants to know, Carrie, what's the one herb that'll raise DHEA? I'm like, well, (laughs) <laughs> it doesn't work that way, you know. Sit down. Let I me wish. make you a cup yes. of tea. <laughs> <laughs> I would not gatekeep. I would tell you if one singular herb would raise DHEA, but it's it doesn't work that way. Mm, yeah. Well, thank you. It's a bit of tough love, but I'll take it. <laughs> um, I want to talk about melatonin. Has oh, my yes, yes, yes. Okay, yes. great. Because. It's one of those that kind of sits in a few different camps in the body in terms of the mm-hmm. way you can define it. Um, give us your your favorite way to 101 melatonin on like how special yeah. it is. 
Oh, so DHA is my favorite hormone. Melatonin is my favorite antioxidant that the body makes. So everyone loves glutathione, which is, of course, a very important antioxidant. Melatonin is, I would argue, a, a better, stronger, or equally as strong antioxidant in the body. It is a circadian rhythm hormone. It is a hormone that helps your entire body figure out it's nighttime and, and darkness is upon us and we should be winded down. Cortisol is the opposite. So cortisol is like the sun. Melatonin is like the moon. So you make melatonin all over your body. Um, all of your mitochondria make my melatonin, but keep it inside. Your melatonin is used as an antioxidant in your mitochondria, your gut cells, you, your enterochromaffin cells, uh, or, um, yeah. And enterochrom, like, what are they called? <laughs> enterochromaffin cells make a lot of melatonin because yeah. everything you eat, breathe, drink, swallow that goes down into your GI tract. Some of it's bad and toxic. So you're, you know, you need antioxidants down there and then you make it out of your pineal gland in your brain. So the melatonin you make in your pineal gland is what actually is not stored. It is shipped out and circulated around to the rest of your body and your melatonin out of your pineal gland starts to produce as light goes down. Once you get darkness, you need darkness as an activating factor for the enzyme that helps you make melatonin. And so we hear all the time on social media, sleep in darkness, get off your phone at night, you know, wind down, wear the blue light blocking glasses. It's for a reason. It's because melatonin literally needs darkness as one of its cofactors mm -hmm. to be made. Yeah. And so if you struggle to fall asleep, can't stay asleep, and you're on your phone, your tablet, your TV, you know, gaming up late, um, you're going to probably struggle to make melatonin, which will affect that. So melatonin is one of my, and, and, and there's a lot of arguments out there. So we talked about no feedback loop with DHEA. So the leading researcher on melatonin is Dr. Russ Ryder. He's 86, 87 years old. He's been studying melatonin since the 1940s. Wow. And I got Please to meet tell him. Me, he, tell me he has an apprentice and like he, there's a succession oh plan going on. Okay. He still lectures. He still travels. I met him last year at a conference. I got my wow. picture taken with him. I, I fangirled. <laughs> I've been reading his work for a long time. Love it. And so he, there's always the debate and I've been reading his work and there's, um, what is the other, there's another scientist. There's another researcher who's a big melatonin. Anyway, they both are like, no, there's no, there's no direct melatonin feedback. And you hear it all the time. Well, if you take melatonin, your feedback loop will kick in and your melatonin goes down. Dr. Ryder stood on stage and he's like, I've been studying it for, since 19, 1940s. There's no, there's no direct feedback loop in melatonin. So if you take melatonin, it's not going to affect your own melatonin. However, a lot of things do affect your own melatonin. Like your own melatonin naturally declines with age. So as you're getting older, right, you, you may find that you need melatonin. And then with him, I believe like, especially once you hit above 55, like I think 55 years old was his cutoff. It was his like, like 35 to 55, you should really like consider looking at it. And especially over 55, he's, he's like the research just shows it could be really beneficial. Um, he takes 80 milligrams. That's eight zero every day. At, and he's 86 years old. Oh my 80 gosh. milligrams. We all about fell out of our chair when he told us. I know it was insanity. I we think only... I go into a like a coma. Sleep coma. A yeah. Coma. You only hear about really high doses with cancer, mm. but he was like also helpful I mean, with COVID and COVID. Oh yeah. Mm. Oh gosh. Yeah. yeah. The, the literature on that for sure. Um, I took, when I had COVID, I totally, I took melatonin throughout the day. I, some of my colleagues, 
Um, I said, oh, I'm taking co. I take it every couple hours. They're like in the day. I said, I want the antioxidant effect. I, I'm already tired. What do I care? I was sick. <laughs> and so, yeah, he took, and I'm not advocating for everyone listening. Don't run out and take 80 milligrams. Dr. Ryder, you know, he's an expert, mm. but um, it was a really good lecture. And for the practitioners looking or listening to this, um, his last name is R E I T E R Russ Ryder. And I highly recommend you read his work because, um, he's really been out there debunking myths on, and he's the true researcher of it for melatonin. So no, does melatonin come with side effects for sure. For some people it can be, it, it can give them weird dreams, right? For some people it can upset their stomach. Um, for some people, because it shifts their circadian rhythm or changes their circadian rhythm, they may notice some hormonal shifts as their body is adjusting those really high doses. Um, you know, you've got to be careful because sleep coma is definitely a real thing. You'll know if you've taken too much melatonin, you won't be able to wake up in the morning very well. So you'll feel drowsy. Yeah. I, I kind of, um, liken it to like a dusty feeling back in my twenties when I used to drink a lot and, um, well, not a lot, but let's say, uh, you know, three or four drinks Mm-hmm. out with friends and then the next day you'd just feel dusty you'd be like oh, <laughs> I gotta shake this off and that yeah. for me is the same feeling with melatonin but something I noticed when I was researching it I would love your feedback on this is if you take it actually quite early in your evening like as in we're trying to actually mimic the sun going down here and the melatonin rising like back in the uh the old days in our yurts and um that's that is actually for me a much better time. And I don't have that hangover as long as it's like only one or two milligrams. I really would not need to be taking more than that. And I'd, I'd love to hear your feedback on um, like a safe experiment that people could do without perhaps seeing a practitioner. Cause you can buy this stuff on the internet. Like we can't ignore that. And so, yeah, what well, here a... it's over the counter. You can buy it yeah. anywhere here, yeah. you know, in the U S I know it's prescription pretty much every other country. Cause it is a hormone, but um so melatonin, it's, it's production starts to ramp up about two hours before your typical bedtime. Cause we are generally creatures of habit. And so we are circadian rhythm. Usually by the time you're an adult, you're, you know, your body, much like your, you know, your dogs, fall, your animals fall into a rhythm with you. Your kids fall into a rhythm with you. Like your body's figured out its rhythm. And so you, you start to produce melatonin about two hours before we're supposed to go to bed. So if you on average go to bed at 10, your melatonin generally starts to increase around 8 or 8 p.m. And so it is true if you're trying to mimic that melatonin, you would take it about two hours before you're going to go to bed. The problem is a lot of people take it at the time of bed and they'll pop three to five milligrams because they are they don't know and they just take it before bed. There's the camp of people that works great. They sleep great. They feel great. And then there's the camp of people who are like, I'm way too drowsy. I hate this. This doesn't work. And then there's the camp who's like, I get the flying, crazy, vivid, horrible dreams. I hate this stuff. And again, it's dose. And it's um, at what point do you take it before you go to bed? On top of that, I was reading research and I can't remember the name of the hormone that melatonin helps shift a hormone that impacts your REM sleep. So if you have dysfunctional REM sleep and you start taking melatonin, it's going to start shifting it, hopefully for the better, but you're going to, that's when we we get that like um, crazy dreams or nightmares because we probably didn't have great REM sleep to begin with. 
And now it's starting to shift and that can be traumatizing for people. And so lower doses earlier in the night can help you uh, ease into that and help fix that REM sleep. Hmm. Interesting. And so keeping our melatonin levels healthy, and I'm glad you mentioned blue light blocking because it's one of those categories of stuff. Like I'm always in that, like, we've got to care about the planet and not buy too much stuff. But at the same time, there are some things in modern life that actually help us be so much healthier that then they help us actually be more of service to the people, communities and planet around us. And then that's actually good stuff. And I definitely put blue light blocking, if you, especially if you live in an urban setting or if you work in the evenings, um, because melatonin is so powerful. And so you've been to his lecture, you've fangirled, you've had the photo. What were your like biggest takeaways on why we should really be paying attention to protecting and potentially sometimes enhancing our levels? The big one was just reiterating to me how potent it is as an antioxidant and considering the amount of toxins that we come in contact day in and day out. And knowing now that it's been proven, all of our mitochondria make melatonin um, to use for themselves. That doesn't go out in circulation. That's an internal cell thing. Um, really hit home for me. Like the body's really trying to protect itself. And melatonin can act like those, like the best analogy is like those Russian dolls, you know, the bigger doll, and then you take the top off and there's a smaller doll. And then, you know, there's a smaller doll and there's a smaller doll in the doll. Um, melatonin can do the same thing. So when it binds to what, like a reactive oxygen species, a, a toxin, um, it morphs into a metabolite of melatonin that is then capable of going out and getting another one, which morphs into the ability to grab another one. So it's not like melatonin's one and done. It's like, come get me. Like I've got like an octopus. Like I got eight arms, legs, and I will get you. I will get all eight of you because I can. And um, and melatonin is billions of years old with a B. So is we have a car insurance commercial here that says we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. And I feel like that's melatonin. Melatonin's <laughs> like, I am girl, I am billions of years old. Like I have seen everything and I know how to handle it. And so I think, yeah, just let the queen do her job. <laughs> you know, Just don't get in her way. Just support her. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Don't so, get in her way. Just don't get in her, her way. We need so Dr. Dr. Ryder did mention like really cool heart studies, really cool diabetes studies. Like he, he definitely, if you read his work, like mel- the addition of melatonin, um, helps the body heal in a lot of ways it, but it's the basics, the reiteration of the basics that was so helpful for me is to just to be like, yes, all these other, the heart, the diabetes, whatever stuff, you know, virus long COVID studies are brilliant. Um, but just goes back to the basics. We need our melatonin. We need to be in darkness at night. We need to be off our, you know, um, uh, tablets, TV, phone, we need to minimize or avoid toxins as much as possible. <laughs> like, why are we, you know, don't use up our all melatonin. It's in our guts. We take care of our gut. Like there's, you know, like it just really helped hone in on those things. We say a lot, but they're not sexy. So people are like, well, no, like what's the one thing I'm like, no, it's the same thing. Yeah. Bu- buy blue light blocking glasses, get off your phone. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, so often, you know, you see those, that meme come up every now and then, or it's the queue with the, the, the massive queue 
for the pills yes. at the pharmacy. Yes. But really yeah. we could swap that for supplements as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, looking for that one silver bullet. And then there's like the one guy who's actually doing the sunlight in the morning and getting the eight hours sleep and, and, uh, and it's just not sexy. Like you say, like, I think we've so hyper productized life, commercialized health that, uh, those basics, um, feel, yeah, unattractive in a way, which is yeah. just bizarre, isn't it? Or it's hard to, perceived as hard to fit in their life. If somebody's is like, I was, um, we're having, we have a bunch of trees in our yard and we're having a tree service come out and give them all a haircut. And so I'm communicating with the neighbors to be like, some of our trees lean into other, you know, yards. So I'm like, Hey, they're going to be trimming and, and just being respectful. We have great neighbors. So I'm like, is there any day you don't want us to do this? Cause it's going to be very loud. And and everyone, and everyone's saying, everyone's like, oh no, I, you know, like I don't, I work, I'm just work a lot. Like I'm always working. Like it's not going to bother me at all. I'm gone working. And I thought, man, that is totally our society, right? Like we don't go outside. We don't, we don't, we don't, we don't have the time to, we don't want to, if you're working and then you come, you've got a family and you're like shuttling kids and like, you don't have time for a lot of people. They're, they're like, I don't have time to go for a, get full spectrum light in the morning and I'm that at night when my kids go to bed is the only time I have to connect to my partner or catch up on, you know, all my computer stuff or, you know, and I get it. I totally get it, which is why they're like, just give me a pill. And I'm like, we've got to make adjustments. We've just got to make societal changes because it is this basic unsexy stuff. That's like, you, you know, it's not a pill. Sorry. Yeah. And, you know, like I've heard Gabriel Mate articulate it so well, which is like we have literally created a society that is anti-health and mental health. Uh, and it's that's why the puzzles are so often so hard because we literally can't get back to that way that just allows the body and the mind to be healthy. Yeah, I agree. We're yeah. trying. We're trying. That's exactly <laughs> the work we're trying to do. So last question is on the types of hormones that sit in a couple of camps, kind of like melatonin is hormone antioxidant, antioxidant. There are some hormones that are hormones neurotransmitters. Can you explain how they can sit in two camps from a biochem perspective? Yeah. So like DHEA can be made in the brain. Mm. Um, and then, and depending on its form can cross into the brain. So you can make it where it's a androgen hormone circulating around or when it's in the brain, then we call it a neurosteroid. Um, um, Progesterone. So when progesterone breaks down into another form, which is called allo, A-L-L-O, then that crosses up into the brain and becomes a neurosteroid. So progesterone itself proper is not, but when it metabolizes the form it creates, does and then it becomes what's known as a neurosteroid. Estrogen, we have so much estrogen in our brain. Estradiol, massive amounts of estradiol in our brain. So we think of it as an ovarian hormone, a female hormone that's doing female things, not realizing that, you know, the brain is part of the female body and we have a lot of estrogen, estradiol up there. So it's mostly location 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 and a lot of these hormones definitely cross over into two camps, depending on what action you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So I have a question then on testing. So let's just say you ran a neurotransmitter panel with urine. Is that testing, like, let's say the dopamine, uh, the serotonin in your 
gut or is it testing what's going on in your brain? Like what comes out in the pee and how can we tell <laughs> whether we yeah. need to work on our gut health or whether we need to work on it? And, and I know gut brain connection, I'm not saying there's separate here, but like sometimes you do need, it's a chicken or the egg thing in terms of what you decide to then therapeutically work on to impact the other. Um, so because of the blood brain barrier, my understanding is the majority of what comes out in the neurotransmitter urine testing is the, from the periphery. So for example, if you get adrenaline, which is epinephrine, and we think of epinephrine as a neurotransmitter in the brain, but of course we have adrenaline over throughout our whole body. So when you urinate out adrenaline, that's what's more happening in the body as opposed to what's happening in the brain. We sort of doing a spinal tap and seeing what's in the central nervous system. It, so, but so when, when I was in practice and, and I understand, I understand why people are like neurotransmitter testing is bogus. You can't get any, you know, like it tells them, tell you what's going on in the brain. And I understand that. However, I did use neurotransmitter testing in practice because I would find that if you're having it in your body below the brain, you were probably also having it in the brain. So if you were a high adrenaline person, I would doubt you were just high adrenaline in your body and not in your brain. You probably felt on fire, stressed out, anxious, worried all the time, not just from the brain down. And so it could be in some cases helpful for me just to see neurotransmitters in general from a peripheral standpoint. So, but there are a lot of arguments against the urinary neurotransmitter testing because it's not the same as like a spinal tap and seeing what's going on actually in the central nervous system. But it is a helpful view. All, you know, all testing, my old boss, the owner of Dutch test, my old boss used to say, or does say, um, all lab testing is looking in the window, different windows of a house. And so urinary neurotransmitter testing is just one window. You just have to understand what you're looking at and what you're looking for. Um, it's the same with any urine testing, saliva testing, blood testing. It's, Different windows, same house. Yeah, totally. And uh, and the person in front of you and the questions you can ask them, right? And and listening to that and then piecing that with what you've tested instead of just looking at the test and going, yeah, but the test says this, so you're lying. <laughs> like- there, so there's an organic <laughs> acid testing, and this comes up a lot. There's an organic yeah. acid testing, which is a urine test. There is a marker, there are two markers, HVA, um, homovanillate, and VMA, uh, vandalmandalate, or homovanillic acid, vandalmandalic acid. It's like a mouthful. Same thing, HVA, VMA, and they are related to dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine. And all the time, practitioners go, I got my organic acid test back and my HVA and VMA are high or one's low or they're both low. My neurotransmitters are screwed. And I'm like, stop. (laughs) (laughs) To make those markers, they have to go through a breakdown process. And the breakdown process is multi-stepped. Therefore, it is not a direct marker of dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine. It is a breakdown product of them. So even though, um, so just with testing, again, different window, same house, and you have to take the person in front of you. If the results come back super low, but you're an anxious, revved up, worried, can't sleep person, I'm not going to look at the you and go like, oh yeah, I bet your adrenaline is low. I'm going to look at you and go like, oh, I bet all your adrenaline is high and you can't get it out. 
So the urine is low because you can't get it out. So it just floats around your body and makes you feel like a Tasmanian devil. Kind of so like just to your to your point, you yeah. have to take the person in front of you because if you just read the result and then said, oh, your VMA and HVA are low, you must be depleted in dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine when it's not the case at all. So this mm. is even how knowing how these things are made and broken down, it makes it extra complicated. For sure. Well, mm. it makes me think of the urine testing that you can do for mold, right? And you know, people go, oh, no, you're fine. You know, it's not a mold problem. We need to look at something else because, look, you don't have anything in in the mold panel. And if they're really crappy detoxes then and metabolizers, then they might not be able to get the stuff out through their urine or any other way. And, and so you have to factor those things in. And I, I love that's why some doctors are now like doing – two days of glutathione beforehand to really try and encourage detoxification. So you get better results, more accurate. I love that. And I think that's just starting to understand, like you said, the breakdown of how things um, come out and, uh, and the person in front of you matching those two things up. So my very last question is actually about living a low tox life. And I am passionate about reminding people that we do what we do most of the time so we can go with the flow some of the time and all of us draw our different lines on what we absolutely will not budge on and prioritize for low-tox living and what we go, you know what? No, that's my thing. I'm keeping that. <laughs> and, uh, and because I know everybody has that line and the line is different for all of us and the sooner we can get to a place where we're not judging each other for what we keep and what we ditch and what we, you know, how it looks for different people. Uh, the sooner I think we can work on our overlaps progress and actually have fun making changes instead of just all the judgy crap that's online at the moment. So what are your top things that you won't negotiate on that you keep low tox uh, for sure? For sure. Um, that's a, so. Uh, I was. I thought you were going to ask me like, what are the things that you are not low tox on? Because I was ready to tell you those. Oh like, no, I, I I will be <laughs> asking you that right after you answer this first one. <laughs> I so and I will caveat this by saying so. I have been a naturopathic doctor almost twenty years, and prior to that, I was in school. So if we include school, and actually prior to that, I worked for the naturopathic school. So I've been in the naturopathic community. Since the holistic integrative functional community since 1999. So my low tox journey is long and I am in 20 plus years in my book, right? I'm in the 20 plus chapter. So if somebody's listening to me going, oh, that's so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, I didn't do this yesterday. You yeah, know, yeah, I, like, exactly. I've been doing this since 1999. So like my makeup is low tox. We have air filters in the house. I have a water filter. Um, we, our food is predominantly organic when we can get it meat. We are meat eaters. There's predominantly free range, um, because it's in abundance here. Um, we, you know, the supplements that I take, um, trying to think of like, we, I don't, I'm not a, my fragrance. If I have it is usually essential oil. I don't have any candle fragrance. I have some Christmas candles, but they're the, like, the better kind, I guess you could say the all natural, but even then I'm like the worst with candles. I always leave them burning. So I'm not really allowed to have candles. Um, I, you know, it's like, so these are, these are the, like, I'm really, our mattress is non-toxic. We did that a couple years ago. We switched to my non-toxic mattresses are, 
our sheets, you know, bam, like they're hundred percent cotton organic or they're bam, organic bamboo. Like, so we've really made those big, our cleaning products through the years. So, so, so that I can sometimes get my nail, my, my nails did not sometimes I get my nails did every couple of weeks. Sometimes get my hair cut, touched up, the blonde touched up, right? That's not organic. That's not natural. Um, those are probably the two big things. I'm like, what else do I <laughs> like alcohol sometimes, you know, it, uh, even then as I've gotten older, I don't really handle alcohol anymore. So it's no fun any really any. So it's like, meh. Um, but the nails and the hair I still keep. So those are probably the biggest things. Everything else, I'm oh my nope, my eyeliner I just switched. I was like, my eyeliner. Oh, the white eyeliner is not natural. My actual eyeliner is is a good one. My mascara is a good one. My my best friend and I are always, you know, going back and forth. Like, what do you use for mascara? What do you use for this? What do you use for that? Um, I think everything else on my makeup kit is is really pretty clean. So I've done this over the course since 1999, so that I my, you know, my like I'm gluten-free, soy-free, I'm predominantly dairy-free. Um, when I choose sugar, it's dark chocolate. It's my go-to. I don't do, I'm not a candy. I'm not cakes. I'm not cookie. I mean, I like them if they're gluten-free, but I don't, they're not my, just, I just want dark chocolate. 88%, 75%. That's me. Give Mm. me a square or two. (laughs) A square. Shut (laughs) up. Yeah. Well, you know, (laughs) every couple hours. Um, thank you. For I don't drink that. coffee. Yeah. I don't drink coffee. So I'm a tea drinker. So I do, I do the peak tea. I do really clean tea. Um, you know, and I take it with me. So I'm the weirdo who's like, hi, can I just have a, you know, a hot, water. hot water? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do the same. <laughs> I, and then I have my own tea. So I do all these things. So when somebody's like, oh my God, I can't believe you have fake nails. Like, you know, you're a fake. I'm like, well, 98% of what I do is pretty awesome. And this is uh, the why nails is what I like. Yeah. And this is why I have started asking this question because of the judginess and people see one thing that, that isn't like the ideal. And then they decide your whole thing is a sham. And I just, that is not life. It is not the truth of the matter. And so I think in starting to ask my beautiful guests this question, we're going to see that everyone has their little thing or two and it's not about what you do like once in a while. It's like your overall picture. And if the overall picture you're working towards solid, that's all you need to worry about because the body's actually pretty clever at handling the odd like, whoa, what's that? Yeah. Let's get rid of that. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's just one of my salt every day that we can't have. Oh my gosh. Hmm. One of my, one of the things I had posted a while ago. So I have been, my whole life I've been prone to headaches and migraines that I, and it, my inherited, my dad has them, but also like hormonal and just like it largely cleaned up because obviously I've cleaned all this stuff up. But if, if I get a migraine and if I'm on an airplane, there's a really good chance I'm going to throw up. So I always carry migraine medication because the last thing I want to do is throw up on on an airplane. Like that's just nasty. So I was telling somebody that if, if I start to get a headache and I don't have my migraine medication, um, on an airplane, if I do a diet Coke and ibuprofen, I can nip it. And they were horrified, horrified that I would drink a diet Coke. And I was like, I can fix a diet Coke right? Like I can, I can, I can adjust for a Diet Coke and an ibuprofen. What I'm not doing is on my knees in an airplane bathroom, throwing up. Thank you very much. You know, or in a little baggie throwing up on a four, six, 10 hour flight. 
because it's just, that's, so I love that you asked this question because I was like, wow, what a way to, you know, like, I think I know what I'm doing. (laughs) I think of of all the people in the world, like if I decide I'm going to have a diet Coke and ibuprofen, so I don't throw up on an airplane, I think I know what I'm doing. And I know what to do on the other end when I get off, you know? And so people are like, oh, you should hydrate more. I'm like, trust me when I'm at the point of puking on an airplane, asking for water is not going to make it better. I can assure you, know, like, really? Have you ever lived life? Like, okay, perfect human, whatever. Yeah. So please step me through how you do it so perfectly. Yeah. And so I I love it when people, I'm very rarely a judger because I'm like, yeah, I mean, shit happens. You do what you got to do. I was at a dinner. I was at a dinner of all functional medicine doctors. It was a huge, huge, big time functional medicine conference. It was an elite dinner. And this poor doctor had a massive migraine, massive. And I said, I, my, my migraine medication is a, um, is, has a barbiturate in it. I I mean, it, it doesn't knock me out, but it is a strong painkiller. And I was like, I have, I have migraine medication. And she was like, I'll take you were two. Like a, <laughs> like a dealer, at, dealer the table. at this table, but I had flown there. So yeah. I had them with me in my purse. And I said, okay, before I give these to you though, like, here's what it is. And she's like, oh no, I prescribe these for my migraine patients too. It's under, oh, it's okay. Within 30 minutes, she could eat her food. She can engage in conversation. She was, I was like, of course, like she looked green. She was in so much pain. And I mm. thought, drink more water. Like, are you kidding me? So like, girl, I got goods. (laughs) I got goods. It'll help. And it just goes to show like, nobody is perfect. We're all doing the best we can. And when you're in a boatload of pain at an event, you're going to do what you got to do. hundred percent. And this is exactly why I'm starting to ask this question because less judgy, more just everyone doing their best and just openly admitting what that looks like for everybody means everyone lets go of the perfect factor because it does not exist. Harry, so good to talk to you. Likewise, my friend. Three years? Like, let's not do that again. So, yeah, very, very great conversation. Thank you for um, pulling those hormones out of the shadows. I don't know why I feel like I have to say it in that voice, but it just... (laughs) Makes it it feels it feels right. Um, thank you, uh, Dr. Carrie Jones on Instagram. If there's a full stop somewhere there. Can you remind me yes. what your handle is? At dr. Carrie Jones. That's it. And dr. everyone dot. should be following you there because <laughs> a you'll always have a great laugh, uh, <laughs> but b you will always learn a ton. So thank you for everything you share, and it's awesome to have you back on the show. Well, thank you. And that is today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder, we have so many fantastic shows in our archives these days. If this particular topic was helpful to you, head over to lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast and click on the podcast directory, which gives you food, body, home, mind, and environmental health topics segmented so you can see all the shows that we've done in all of those areas and head straight to what you want. A reminder, we also have 10 fabulous e-courses that I've written with various doctors, naturopaths, health professionals, and experts over the years to support you on your low-tox journey, whether it's making daily swaps, 
getting ready to make babies, looking after your inflammation, you can hit the courses tab on lotoxlife.com to explore those. And lastly, I would love to meet you on socials. Go and head over to at lotoxlife on Instagram or find us on Facebook. It's always such a pleasure to chat and see how you guys are going when you share favorite shows and share them with your friends. I absolutely love that. A little reminder, of course, that all of our shows are not intended as medical advice. They are intended to open the minds and hearts of people and maybe help you explore something you hadn't considered yet, but please always check in with your health professional. And one last little request, if you have time to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast, that would just mean the world to me because it helps us get out there and have other people have confidence that that thing they're considering pressing play on is absolutely worth it. I'll catch you for the next show you tune into. Thanks for joining me again. This is Alex Stewart, founder of Lotox Life.